a conversation that I had with a lady some months ago. Um, she wasn't a religious lady, and which means, of course, she wasn't a follower of Jesus. But we engaged in a conversation, and eventually she asked the dreaded question. And the dreaded question for me is always, what do you do for a living? That's not because I'm afraid or ashamed of being a pastor. It's just I find out when people hear what I do, they kind of close down. They expect me, I don't know what they expect me to do, like pull out a Gutenberg Bible and bash them on the head with the Bible. For whatever reason, though, anyway, she asked me, she said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And, and she was surprised. And uh, she said something to the effect of, wow, you don't seem like a pastor. And um, I suppose some might consider that a... a uh, an offensive thing. I actually found that a compliment. Now, I don't know what a pastor is supposed to look like, but um, apparently I didn't fit it. I was I'm ordinary. I was wearing jeans and a t-shirt and talking in normal language, no these and thous, and I was just, just talking. And um, anyway, it, it surprised her. And in the context of the conversation, eventually she said, after finding out that I was a pastor, she said this comment. Uh, and she said, uh, so you guys, and I should back up and say that the conversation turned to the issue of homosexuality. And rather nonchalant, in a rather nonchalant manner, she said, well, so you guys, you guys hate homosexuals, is that right? Now, she's not a religious person at all, but that question stunned me. She said it as if she, it, wasn't, it wasn't even a reflection of her. She said, oh, you guys, you guys hate that particular crowd. And it stunned me, not that I wasn't expecting it, but it's just when you hear somebody say that, it's, it's kind of stunning. And I remember responding, of course not. We don't hate homosexuals. I, and I went on to say, you know, I've, I've had people in my life who were gay, and I've had acquaintances that were lesbian, and I've had close friends, even roommates, who struggled with it. So I said, There's, we, we don't in any way, shape, or form hate homosexuals. But that question has haunted me. It raises the deeper question for me, and I think for all of us, how is it that people out there get the impression that people in here hate homosexuals or hate particular groups of people that are bound by particular sins? How is it that they get the sense that we hate them? That's an important question because that seems to be the pervading or prevailing perspective of those outside on those inside the church. It's an interesting, interesting question. Why is it? And I, I wonder if, um, well, I should say this, that I know part of it is, is the fact that um, media has a way of, of broadcasting only the extreme and often hostile elements of the Christian church. So that's all the world sees. So, of course, they kind of judge everybody by the bad fruit in the church. That's true. I also think that it's a, it's a mistake in thinking to equate disagreement with hate. It's fallacious thinking um, to think that because I disagree with somebody's lifestyle or because I believe God thinks it's wrong, that I therefore hate them. I mean, I do a lot of things my wife dislikes and disagrees with, but she still loves me. She doesn't hate me. My son Isaac has this habit of when I tell him to do something he doesn't want to do, he'll stand there, turn red in the face, and say, no, as loud as he can in my face. Now, it's wrong, morally wrong, for my son to defy me. But simply because I believe it's wrong doesn't in any way, shape, or form mean I hate him, I love him. So it's fallacious thinking to think that we can't, that disagreement equals hatred. That you can actually love somebody that you disagree with or you think is even living in a, in a wrong way. So what is it then? Aside from those two things, because I think it's more than simply, in other words, that 
perspective that people in the conservative church hate homosexuals is more than just a mistaken thinking and more than just um, misrepresentation by the media. And I'd venture to say that a big part of why they think we hate is because of what we emphasize. That is, people are oftentimes defined by what they emphasize. If, if you're a guy who fishes all the time, you have a fishing boat, you have fishing stickers on your car, people get the impression that you like fishing. I mean, what you broadcast the most forms people's impression of who you are. And I think, I believe, that in the public forum, what they have heard the most, the world, uh, especially in our country, what they've heard the most and the impression that they've got comes from and is formed by what we stand against in terms of moral issues. That's mostly what they hear is what we're against, which means their impressions and perspectives are defined by what we're against, not what we're for. And in doing that, we inadvertently send a message that we are your adversaries, we are against you, and that kind of sends off this sense that we don't like you, and you can see why some would think we hate you, because all they see is us fighting over moral issues. That's what they see. What you emphasize defines you. If what they see is all that we're against, then that forms their perception as to who we are, and I think in large part that's why people think we hate certain groups of people bound by particular sins. And I think that's a tragedy, because the whole point of us being here is to seek and save that which was lost, to carry out Jesus' mission. Isn't that not correct? So it leads to a really important question in our particular time, and that question is how is it that we maintain our moral conviction that we don't compromise it, which a lot of churches are doing, saying, okay, let's just bend. How do we maintain the moral conviction that is laid out for us in Scripture at the same time engage in society in such a way that doesn't form a perspective on what we're against, but rather shows them that we love them. How is it that we, without compromising conviction, engage the world in such a way that we reverse the reputation so they say, that group of people actually loves people? And I think the solution is largely bound up with, if you will, the flags that were flying the highest in the church. It's the bumper stickers on the church. It's, 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 it's what represents us. If, if our highest flag, and I think the highest flag should be none other than Christ crucified, risen. That's what the, the church should be known for, about a crucified Christ risen, a Christ who is a savior for sinners, a redeemer of rebels, a healer of the heart, a person who mends people who are maimed by their sin. That that's, that's what the church is. So that people can come and in belief and repentance can actually find rest for their souls. And I don't know that people out there sense that this is a place where they can come and find rest for their souls. That it's, it's actually a place about a Savior who's, who forgives sin. About a Redeemer who, who captures rebels and brings them into His family. But next to that flag of Christ, the crucified and risen, that's what people should be hearing the most and seeing the most in us, is this, what we might call a trumpet blast, the loudest sound that we make, and that is a sense of love. That is the solution, in large part, in my thinking, comes to reprioritizing and saying, what is the most important thing we need to do, staying with that, because, and if that's exalting the risen Christ, crucified Christ, and if it's the love for people, our neighbors, then that will change the perception. And Paul, in this particular passage, chapter 13, 8 
through 10 brings us right back to the priority of how the church is to relate to the world. The priority of how the church is to relate to the world and its love. Now, if you've been following in the last couple of weeks in Romans 13, you'll note in the first seven verses, Paul tells us how we as followers of Jesus are to relate to the governing authorities. And that is through this glad and willing submission to laws and paying taxes and so forth. And now he transitions in verse 8, and he tells us how now we're to relate to the society and the people around us. So verses 1 through 7 tell us how we're to relate to those above us, and verses 8 through 10 tell us how we're to relate to those around us. And he gives us the priority of love. Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10. Let's read this together. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man, you see, he's broadening it. It's not just the love for the people in the body. It's love for people outside the body of Christ. He who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not murder, commit adultery, um, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So here he's telling us how we're to relate to those around us. And the section of verses breaks into two, logically. Paul tells us in the first half of verse 8 how we're to relate, namely love. And in the second half of verse 2, he goes on to explain why. The how is contained in let no debt remain outstanding except for the uh, continuing debt to love one another. That's how. And then you see the word for. He who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. That's the explanation or that's the reason why we're to love. The how, first part of verse 8. The why, last part of verse 8 all the way through verse 10. And that's the two parts of the message. And I want to start with the second part, that is why. Why is it? that we are to show love to our neighbor. And I believe it, it consists of this, is that love is the summation. It's the, the summary principle of all biblical commands. It is, um, it is the root and the intent of all biblical commands that God calls us to do is for the sake of loving people. That's why. It's all summed up in this, this one thing. And you'll see it. He expresses it three different times in verses, um, well, second part of verse 8 through verse 10. He says, um, For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And by that he means the entire law. In other words, the intent of the whole laying out these rules is so people might love one another. You might love your neighbor. Then verse 9, the commandments do not steal. And he gives four of the ten commandments. Um, And he says, and whatever other commandment there may be, which is a way of saying all other commands are summed up. They're unified. The unifying principle of all the commands is this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it fulfills the law. It sums up the law. And then he he summarizes again, recaps at the end of verse 10 when he says, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, we looked at this in the Gospel of Mark some time ago, so I don't want to belabor it, but basically it's pretty staggering to think that Paul reduces the entire system of commands and and instructions of the entire Scripture down to a single statement. It is the summary, the unification of all biblical 
ethics commands is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Simplified, that's, that's it. The most important command in Scripture. And you find that priority of love uh, sustained throughout the New Testament. Of course, it's in the Old Testament as well, but it's just more prominent in the New. We have to keep in mind that of all of the biblical virtues like faith and hope, and faith is a big one. I mean, it's by faith in what Christ has done. We're saved, meaning faith is extremely important. Yet Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13 would say faith and hope, but the greatest of these is love. He holds it up as supreme, as the primary one, apart from which if you don't have love, you're nothing. You do nothing. We have to remember that this love is the chief and first and greatest fruit of God's Spirit in our lives. It's the testament, the primary witness that the Spirit is here, is we actually love people. Paul, what does Paul say? He says the fruit of the Spirit is, and he starts with, with love. Even Romans tells us that the Spirit pours or sheds His love in us and compels us in that love to love others. It's, it's the primary greatest expression of the Spirit in us, the greatest fruit. Not only that, but it is the greatest identifying mark of the believer in the church. It is supposed to be anyway that people would see, you know, John 13:35 and know that you're my disciples by the way you care about each other. That's how weighty it is. Why, why the primacy and the first thing has to be loving your neighbor, loving people. Paul didn't invent it, of course. He got it from his great master, Jesus Christ, who himself reduced everything down to one command in two parts, to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one, which is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's why love we must love, because it is primary. It's not secondary. It's the primary mandate of our lives of our Christianity, of our discipleship, is to love. It's primary, not secondary. It is primary. And that has to remain that one of the biggest flags that we wave in the church that gives the people the sense that we actually love people. We're not against them. We're not, we're not their adversaries. We're not against people. We're against principalities and powers. That's what Paul says. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people. We're fighting against the things that rule and dominate them. And that's the principalities and powers of darkness. They're never to be the enemy. So that's the reason why, in short, is because love um, is the union and the summary of all other biblical commands, the most important of Christian virtues, the chief mark by which the church is to be identified, and the greatest fruit of the Spirit. Now let's back up to the first part of verse 8 and talk about how. How, then, do we love people? And notice he says, I'm going to read the first part of verse 8. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now I find it striking how he talks about love as a debt that remains unpaid. In other words, we continue to pay and pay and pay, but it never gets paid off. By contrast to verse 7, which talks about taxes and revenue and, and respect and honor, that those are to be paid off. I mean, that's the contrast when he says in verse 7, give everyone what you owe him. That is, the governing authorities and people um, that you owe money to if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding. In other words, pay them all off, including the financial debts that one might have. 
which is, I think, as a side application, an important word in a time where people are willingly walking away from their contracts with their homes, not because they have to, but because they can get away with it with impunity. Pay it in full. You made the contract. As long as you have money in the bank, pay it. I think that's a, that's a warranted Christian application. Simply because we could walk away with impunity from a mortgage doesn't mean we necessarily should. If you don't have money in the bank, of course you can't pay it. But if you, there are people who are walking away from homes who have money in the bank and reneging on contracts simply because they can with impunity. And Paul says, if you owe someone, pay it. Back to the main point, though, it's not about paying off of debt. He says, let no debt remain outstanding. If it's money, pay it, pay it off. If it's respect, pay your respects. If it's your taxes, pay your taxes. Pay the debt in its time. But, he goes on to say, there's one exception to that. And that is the debt to love one another. It's interesting that Paul thinks of our love for others as a debt we owe. A debt which can never, according to this, be paid off because it's a continuing debt. It gives us the impression that no matter how much we love people, we can't stop and say, okay, I've done enough. No, there's a continuing debt you have to pay off of love to, to the world. That is our responsibility and a debt we owe to the world is you keep loving people. And then after that, you, you keep more loving people. And then after that, you love people more because it's a continuing, ongoing debt of loving people. Imagine if each of us, I mean, that's a pretty morbid per, uh, perception, I suppose, on the part of Paul, because who likes to think of being in debt all the time? You keep paying and paying and paying, and it never gets paid off. But that's, that's precisely the, the image that he has. Imagine if each, each of us woke up every morning thinking, okay, I got a debt to make payments on today. I'm going to go and I'm going to get in my carpool van and I'm going to make a payment on this enduring debt to the people in my carpool van. Then when I get to the office, I'm going to make a payment on the debt, this never-ending debt to the receptionist. And when I pick up my phone to talk to my clients, I'm going to make a payment to that never-ending debt of love. I'm going to love my clients. Then when you come home, you make a payment on your never-ending debt to love your kids and to love your wife. And then if you have time to to pay a payment on that never-ending debt to your neighbor by helping him put up a fence or, or, or plant a garden or change a tire. It is, and then you wake up in the morning, it's the same thing. You still have a debt to pay. That is, you've got to love people again and again and again because it's a continuing, never-paid-off debt. Now, I know debt terminology tends to discourage, but but you have to keep in mind, again, that that what we're talking about is a debt of love that is only paid as the God's Spirit works in us. It's His fruit, right? So as we continue to pay the debt, it's an expression of God at work in us, loving people through us. And I think it's one of the ways we actually experience God's love is by seeing His love work through us to love others. So there's a sense of intense joy of knowing God loves me as I love other people. I wonder, this is just a wonder, this isn't a statement, but I wonder if sometimes people who don't experience God's love are really loving other people. You know, if the chief fruit of the Spirit is love and we're loving people, I get the sense that we experience, and I've experienced it myself, that God loves me too. A never-ending debt to love. That's how he, how he speaks of it. And that is to be, be the way that we are to treat people um, around us that God puts in proximity to us. I mean, that's what a neighbor is. We're to love our neighbor, which is people God has placed 
in our path. You know, it could be the mailman, postman, UPS man. It could be the PG&E meter guy who comes and reads your meter over the fence. It could be your uh, Clark Pest Control guy or, or anybody. So whoever God brings into your path, that's now who you're to pay a payment of the debt of love. That's, that's what you're to do. And it's exciting to see that when people do that, it actually is an amazing joy to do it. And that's what God has called us to to pay this debt. And the measure, of course, is our own lives. How would you want to be treated by other people? Or how do you treat yourself? Will you care for yourself? As I said in the Gospel of Mark, we might not like ourselves, but everybody loves themselves. You're here. You've eaten. You have a place to stay because you love yourself. You do. You care for yourself. He's saying the neighbors around you love them. You have this continuing debt of love. Treat them as you'd want to be treated. You know, I, I work with some amazing people, and most of you know that, um, at, at church here. And then there's a lot of people in the church family that I get to see. And, and God does some amazing stuff. I, I've sat and watched John Barry at a restaurant. I tease him a lot, but and you know that, but he's, uh, he's an inspiration to me. We went to this restaurant, and I watched John strike up a conversation with a gay waiter. And John likes to go to this restaurant a lot, and so... I've been with him a couple of times, and to see that not only has he struck up conversations with this gay man, but he has actually built a friendship with him. And he has listened to him, has asked questions about his life, and, and John has had opportunities to minister Jesus to him. And what's interesting is that John didn't, didn't go right to the issue, the moral issue. John went right to Christ. And he has a friend to this day, and it, it continues to flourish. And John is making payments in that never-ending debt of love to someone who desperately needs to hear about the love of Christ. And he enjoys it. That's what paying a payment to the never-ending debt of love looks like, and that's what it entails. I have watched Paulina Polk, who runs our tutoring program. Um, On a good Friday of 2008, I I watched her realize that that the Spanish-speaking people who come through our little stations of the cross they wouldn't be able to read the pamphlet because it's in English. So of her own love, decides I'm going to take that home. And she translated the entire thing so that the Spanish-speaking people could read it in their own language. She's simply making a payment of that debt she has. And I know she enjoyed doing it. It's That's what we were called to do. Um, I, I have watched, and I didn't see this. This is a story, and it's true. Val Ackerman driving her van down North Texas Street. And she sees a little old lady who is on her little electric cart um, coming back from the grocery store. She tipped over. And her groceries were splattered all over the asphalt in the road, and no one stopped. So she whipped her little Sienna, Toyota Sienna around, and she got out, and she scooped up this woman, put her in her van. She picked up her groceries, and with the help of someone who finally did stop, picked up this heavy you know, um, electric cart, stuck it in her van, she took her home. Come to find out the woman is Canadian. And Val's Canadian. It's like God orchestrated a neighbor there. And she simply stopped. And then out of, out of that relationship, she's had opportunities to take her to the hair salon and take her to the grocery store and doctor's appointments. That's, that's what we were made for and called to do if we were to reverse the sense that people have outside that, no, they hate us. That kind of stuff tells people, no, they, they love us. They serve us. They, they want our best interest. Even tonight, this is totally off my notes, so if it's a little rough, I hope you'll uh, be with me. 
I'm getting ready over here in the coffee shop, just kind of going over it in my head. And I, I look over, and there's somebody who had just dropped off this lady, blonde-haired lady, and she, he was going the wrong way. Can't turn right out here in Alaska, right? Is that Alaska? Is that Pennsylvania? Anyway, can't turn right, but he does. Drops this lady off. She, she sits over on the curb, and she puts her head, head, head on her hands, and she looks like she's crying. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm preparing. i got stuff to do. But she looks like she's crying. And I just looked up to the Lord. I said, are you testing me? I have stuff to do. He's like, there's a neighbor. I just put her there for you. And so I thought, ah. you don't always do it because it's the first thing you think about. But I, I knew. So I walked out there. Sure enough, she pulled down her sunglasses and she was bawling. Her boyfriend of 15 years just left her off, dropped her off, apparently had a huge fight. And I said, can I help you? And she goes, not unless you can send me to Reading. That's where I'm from. I said, well, I can't, I can't take you to Reading, but, but we can get you to the bus station. And so I invited her in the church. We called the bus station, got the schedule. And, and, um, and about that time, her boyfriend returned, and he was mad. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, not only am I not preparing but I'm probably going to get in the middle of this domestic dispute and get in a fight. That's what I'm thinking. So he comes up, and he's pounding on the door, basically. And um, so I asked the lady, I said, what do you want me to do? Do you want to go talk to him? Do you want me to go talk to him? Do you want me to call the cops? This is like three hours ago. <laughs> and, um, and she says, I don't want to go out. I'm, I'm afraid. And I said, well, okay, then we'll just stay here. She said, no, no, let's, uh, if you'll come with me. So I, I go out there, and, um, and he's, I'm just looking at her. He's like, can I talk to you alone? And, uh, um, and she, she looks at me and she goes, no, I don't want to talk to him alone. I said, sorry, I can't go. And he goes, why are you looking at him? I'm a total stranger, you know? And, um, and, and about that time, John Barry shows up because I, I called him and said, hey, this lady needs a ride to go up to the, to the, um, to Greyhound. John Barry shows up. This guy, after they leave, runs after the car. Then he runs back to me and says, what kind of pastor are you? I said, buddy, I said, your, your, your friend was scared. And I did, you dropped her off. I did what I thought was to be done. And I sent her home. And uh, boy, that was just a little moment that I didn't think I wanted to be a good neighbor. I, I didn't, because I wasn't sure if he was going to hit me or not. Fortunately, God was good, and he went away. Problem went away. But it was a test. A test amidst the busyness of my life. Would I do what the Lord is telling me to tell you to do? And I'll tell you, part of me didn't want to do it. But I know, and we should all know, that regardless, regardless of how busy you are, you know, I have a debt of love to pay to this woman on the curb. And Christ has called me to pay a payment of love um, and continue to pay and continue to pay. And I think it's things like that that begin to break down the walls that have created false impressions between the world and us. And that should be true not only on, a, on an individual level of loving people, but on a corporate level as well. That the, 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 the activities that we engage in as a corporate body, as a corporate church, we have to think through very carefully how we engage in the community. Is what we do saying to the community that we are your adversaries and that we are against you? Or in the activities that we're doing as a corporate body, are we saying we serve you, we value you, we love you? I think those are the things you have to really carefully consider when, when thinking through how we engage politically. And my own personal opinion is the church should remain politically reticent or reluctant to get involved politically simply because 
it can send the wrong message to the people that we are against you and your adversaries. We are not for you. And therefore, we kind of contravene our own mission of seeking and saving that which was lost. It comes down to to one thing, basically. It's making sure the flags that we wave in the church, that is the big flag that towers over all others by which we're known, is the flag of a crucified Christ, risen, a Savior of sinners, a Redeemer of rebels. And the way that we wave that flag and the way that we interact with the world around us is right here, set forth in Paul, that we love them. That's our divine mandate from Jesus himself. That's what he desires of us to show the world that we indeed love people. And I think we have a great start at our church. I love watching what the Lovin' Project has done. It says to the community, we actually care about you with Paulina. I can imagine so much more of people getting involved and showing or paying those little payments of love by getting involved with Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or going down and and helping out at at, uh, Mission Solano or getting involved in Alpha Resource and, and helping pregnant girls who messed up and discover the love of Christ and learn how to love their babies. Or just being active in our own respective neighborhoods and embedding ourselves in the lives of the people around us so that you can actually pay those payments of love that we continually owe. It, it would change that, that perception slowly, but it would change it. It would tear down the walls and st- start to build bridges with people that we're trying to reach with Christ. And you know, I'll finish with this. One of the, one of the families that does this the best in our church is Tony Tiemann. You know, Tony Tiemann, our, 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 our youth pastor, you know him as a youth pastor, an extremely busy guy. If you ever look at his daytimer, it's packed. He can tell you what he's doing on June 4th at 10 o'clock. That's how busy he is and how jammed his, his, uh, his daytimer is. Well, he runs two large ministries. He runs our um, high school ministry and he runs our junior high ministry. Both of them. And he runs both staffs. Busy guy. Not only does he do that, but he has three young kids, one of whom is a little jewel that needs special attention. And yet in the midst of running these two ministries and caring for his family, Tony, amidst the busyness of his life, has embedded himself into the lives of the people on Nancy Court. He knows the families. He knows their dysfunctions. He knows the names of all the kids on his block. And every Monday, despite the fact that Tony's busy, Tony scoops up five to ten of those kids and brings them to blast so that they can hear about Christ. He does it because he does ministry 24-7. He pastors 24-7. He loves people everywhere he goes. That is, he is continuing to pay that debt of love to the people around him. And, and he doesn't attack their dysfunctions or say, you know, you, this is screwed up in your life and this is screwed up in your life. He says, hey, I love you. And I want to take you to a place that you can hear about Jesus. That's, that's pretty astounding. And what's equally astounding is, is that a small group in our church heard about that and they are coming alongside, uh, Tony and Lori and, and helping them with food and giving them food to feed these kids. And they're getting joy out of helping Tony, who's embedded himself in this, this little Nancy Court neighborhood and reaching kids for Christ. 
And you hear a story like that and you think, man, that's extraordinary. And it's sad that we think that it's extraordinary because that should be ordinary. That's what should be happening in each of our lives, in each of our communities, as we seek that mission edge of our life to see that Christ infects people through the words that we say, but also through the love that we show. Because that's the mandate. How can we not, when we've received so much by God, though we were in a dysfunctional, messed up, screwed up state, undeserving of love, poured Himself out upon the cross for us? How can we not then go and say, listen, I know you're messed up. So was I. Here's the love of God. And I want to love you too because that's what Jesus did for me. That ought to be, that ought to be the main mark of the church, the main mark of our lives. Flag of a, of a crucified Christ, Savior of sinners, Redeemer of rebels, people who love one another, people who care about one another in real tangible ways. I'm not suggesting we compromise moral conviction. I'm simply saying we have a priority. And that is to make sure we love people and that they know we love people. Father, we pray that you would make that a reality in not just our church, but in the churches that surround faith.